Many times when you buy your groceries, be it in a supermarket, on a local market or directly from the producer, you don't pay the true price. Take rice as an example. Each day, more than half of the world sits down to eat rice. To produce one kilogram of rice, you need between 3,000 and 5,000 liters of water. You need to have flooded fields throughout the year, many of them. Globally, rice fields have reached the size of 165 million hectares. That's the size of Iran, or almost five times the size of Germany. While rice is quite affordable, its cultivation poses significant negative externalities. Rice fields emit huge amounts of methane into the atmosphere, and their extensive water and space requirements lead to issues such as water scarcity and habitat loss. The sheer scale of rice cultivation has broader implications for biodiversity and ecosystem health. Despite the negative externalities of rice production, it remains an essential component of many dietary traditions, particularly in Asia, where the majority of the world's population lives. Governments actively support rice cultivation, providing financial incentives to farmers, which, in turn, increases the supply and helps keep consumer prices for rice relatively low. If governments didn't support farmers financially, consumer prices of rice would increase. It's hard to imagine a world where rice is a dish for the upper class. But rice is just one example of many. It's also beef, sugar and so on. This is Food for Transformation. Hey, and welcome to the second episode of Food for Transformation. My name is Katie Gallus, and I look forward to taking you on a journey of how we can build more sustainable agriculture and food systems. In this podcast, we talk with experts from all around the globe about how to make our nutrition and global agricultural system fit for the future, for everybody on this planet. The first episode was about resilience of our food systems. And today, we're going to have a closer look on public support for our global food systems. So welcome to episode two, a multi-billion dollar opportunity. Public support to agriculture amounts to more than $800 billion a year. That's a lot of money to support and stabilize our food systems. Globally, public support for agriculture continues to increase. Looking into the future, trends show that global agricultural support will reach $1.8 trillion under a business-as-usual scenario by 2030. Supporting farmers and keeping prices low for customers sounds like a good idea, right? Well, not everyone's happy with that. A lot of these public support systems were put in place decades ago with the objective of increasing yields and agricultural productivity. But now... We need this support to be better targeted to deliver on 21st century challenges. This is Melissa Pinfield. She's a senior partner at Meridian Institute and executive director of the Just Rural Transition Initiative. By these 21st century challenges, she's mostly referring to the climate crisis. Today, agriculture and food systems face unprecedented and accelerating challenges. They are responsible for around one third of global greenhouse gas emissions and the main driver of biodiversity loss, as well as freshwater use and contamination. And they're also a victim of climate change, nature loss and conflict. If we have a look again on our rice fields, rice is a major contributor to emissions, 
as its cultivation produces large amounts of greenhouse gases and requires enormous amounts of water. One might ask the question, does it still make sense to subsidize a product that is so damaging to our planet? Why not just stop and focus our investments on alternatives? But as you can imagine, the answers are not easy. But I can already give you one keyword. Repurposing. In the past decades, when governments intervened into our food systems, they were usually supposed to increase agricultural production so that consumers have a stable supply of affordable food. Moreover, subsidies were aimed at improving the income of people working in agriculture. Especially in the global north, this development led to an increase of production and caused farms to get larger and larger. At the same time, the number of farmers has decreased dramatically. While this development provided food stability, it had some severe negative effects. Small farmers from the global south struggled to keep up with international food prices. And growing monocultures and the use of chemical fertilizers caused significant environmental damage. In 2023, we are still adhering to the system in large parts in the global north, which is not just unsustainable, but also not very effective, says Melissa Pinfield. Public support for agriculture is often unequally distributed. It currently drives a low value for money as a way of helping farmers. One study found that for every US dollar of public support, the return to farmers is 35 cents. We are keeping a harmful, ineffective and unsustainable system going, at least in large parts of agriculture in the global north. Let's look at Malawi. Like in most African countries, agriculture in Malawi is dominated by smallholders. They produce a large part of the domestic food and often also products for the world market, including cotton, cocoa, coffee and tea. The country in Southeast Africa relies economically on its rain-fed agriculture, employing nearly 80% of the population and 60% of export earnings. A functional agriculture is crucial for the country. Therefore, the sector receives public support. However, there have been some major challenges in the past time, says Jacob Niorongo. He is the chief executive officer of the Farmers Union of Malawi. The productivity of crops is not improving. At the same time, if you look at the budget allocation to the agricultural sector by the government of Malawi, we are hitting the target, the current target of 10% or even above a budget allocation to agriculture. And yet the sector is not growing because of low productivity. So Jacob and his team wanted to know where that low productivity comes from and why the situation hasn't improved. After some research, they found out. Our soils are low in pH, they are low in carbon, but also if you look at the presence in terms of biodiversity within the soils, so the soils, actually one researcher said, Malawian soils are dead. In the previous logic of big-scale farming, one would now try to literally pump more nutrients into the soil with chemical fertilizers. But Jacob and his team were asking the question of whether subsidies should change their purpose. So we had the paper, we developed the paper, which we shared with stakeholders and important stakeholders, development partners, private sector, civil society organizations, farmer representatives, they came together and we had an initial workshop using that discussion to look at what are the possibilities for 
incentivizing small-scale farmers especially to invest in soil health? And how can you have some kind of a payment scheme that can kind of initiate farmers to start investing in soil health? And then over time, farmers will realize the benefits through improved yield, improved soil fertility, and soil carbon. Investments into soil health include various combinations of measures, such as rotating crops in diverse patterns and intercropping. Also, you'd have to add organic matter, lime, and apply appropriate fertilizer. Strengthening the soils does have long-lasting effects. Healthy soils increase the yields, lead to less erosion, which leads to less sedimentation of rivers and dams. In this regard, it helps to conserve natural water resources. So while we are discussing about investment in soil health, where we want to incentivize farmers to invest, to use technology that can reduce soil erosion, the outcomes are greater at landscape level. The principle behind this is to support local farmers financially when they take care about their soil in a sustainable way. In the end, it's not just the farmers that profit from this strategy, but society as well as public goods like air, water and soil are protected. And there's a name for this strategy. Public money for public goods. David Laborde, Director for the Agri-Food Economics Division at the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. So let's say we produce more wheat that are going to be consumed by private actors, private companies, private consumers, and are produced by private farmers. So there's not so much public good out of it. But at the same time, the farm sectors is important to manage landscape. It has an impact on biodiversity. It has an impact on soil health, climate. And that's actually public good. You know, water quality is what we call a local public good. Community around farms can be positively impacted or not by the quality of water. The climate, the greenhouse gas emission is a global public good. Every time that Because we produce something, we emit carbons or methane. According to the FAO, almost 90% of producer support is price distorting or harmful to nature and health. And even more pressing, in a study which David Laborde co-authored, researchers found out that in a business-as-usual scenario, greenhouse gas emissions from agricultural production are expected to double by 2040. So, repurposing agricultural subsidies towards our sustainable practices would have tremendous impact and is a multi-billion dollar opportunity. It can be done. Of course, it's a delicate exercise. On one hand, it's context-specific. You know, farmers around the world are different. Ecosystems are different. Crops react differently. So we have to think about, you know, to be context-specific. It's not like there is one silver bullet. We know the type of goals. Yes, we want to pay more for public goods. We want to support the consumption of healthy products. To achieve all of this, farmers need to be brought on board. That's because one of the main principles of repurposing is to give the farmers financial incentives to take care of the environment. They are at the core of the action here. If you start to see to farmers who destroyed the planet and we are going to get money out of you, you are not going to engage them and transform that. So you need to understand their constraints and to make sure to realign incentive in the direction that the society wants, but also that is compatible with what farmers can do. 
and will do because we are not going to replace them by robots that will just do what we want. In Malawi, the process of focusing on soil health is just getting started and will be monitored precisely in the future. Let's have a practical look on some other part of the world where subsidies already change the purpose. Charlotte Peters, a farmer from Germany, already receives public funds for the sustainable agriculture based on public goods. She has a farm close to the western German town Koblenz with 280 hectares of arable land, pig fattening and a biogas plant. It's a family-owned farm business in the fifth generation. Our farm is compensated from the EU for taking land out of production as well as creating of water protection zones across brooks and soil coverage during the whole winter time. We try to make the best out of these regulations on our farm by seeding perennial different cover crop mixtures that enhance the biodiversity and conserve the soil in those areas. Public support for agriculture is the largest item in the EU budget and makes up roughly one-third of the total amount of 450 billion euros. The subsidies Charlotte Peters is receiving are part of the so-called Payments for Ecosystem Services, which exists since 2019. The ecological benefits are diverse and range from supporting pollinators, for example, to creating habitats for wildlife, to preventing soil erosion, as well as preserving the soil fertility. And not to forget, these zones are part of the maintenance of our wonderful landscape. And yeah, also for beautiful walks along the flowering fields. Although Charlotte profits from the EU subsidies, she sharply criticizes their implementation. Honestly, a big mess of bureaucracy that is often not really adapted to the regional conditions and ecosystem requirements. In general, the implementation is not very practical and is linked to deadlines and measures and conditions that are, from my point of view, far away from the good agricultural practice. And I think in general, the ecosystem services have to be included in a meaningful way in order to preserve our fertile landscape. And it goes only hand in hand with good agricultural practice. It seems to be challenging to put the theory into practice. Also, if you take all the agricultural EU subsidies into account, large companies still profit the most contrarily to what was promised beforehand by the EU. The project farmsubsidy.org has analyzed all the subsidies and concluded that small farms are disadvantaged compared to the big players in the game. The top 1% in terms of size and production received almost a quarter of all subsidies. An example, 30,000 euros per farm and month. The entire bottom half, consisting of small farms and farmers, received only 200 euros per farm and month. On the one hand, there already is a changed mindset to encourage farmers financially when they take care of the environment. On the other hand, the financial means for that are not well balanced. So how should we proceed? Melissa Pinfield of the Just Rural Transition Initiative. There is no one-size-fits-all. Farm size, landscape type, political context, water availability, biodiversity, crops and livestock 
are just a few factors that vary widely between countries and within them. So we really need to look at locally tailored approaches. For these tailored approaches to work, you need data and knowledge. A lot of it. That's where organizations like the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN step in. So FAO is really playing an important role here. First, to foster this global discussion, because yes, since we trade, actually we need coordination across countries. Because part of the problem to make reform is sometimes one country at a time doesn't want to do the reform because then we lose competitiveness. So we need to make sure there is a global dialogue, global agreements on a vision and on some direction of the reform. And after part of the reform may even go to other organizations like the WTO to adapt the rules on that. But then also you need to support countries. Of course, tackling climate change and ensuring healthy and sustainable food on a global scale is a huge challenge. These are services that are not necessarily rewarded in the market. Therefore, there is a case for the governments to intervene into the market by subsidizing ecosystem services with public money. But currently, this system isn't well equipped for the challenges lying ahead of us. If we want to change this, we should be aware of the tremendous impact of this multi-billion dollar opportunity. The money is already there. We just need to repurpose its spending. It became clear that this is only achievable if governments work together with farmers. They know their land and their procedures. And in the end, it is them who must take care of the measures stabilizing, for instance, the local biodiversity. The public money for public goods approach is an easy-to-understand principle that can adapt to different realities, from the small farmers in Malawi to the biogas plant in Charlotte Peters Farm in Germany. This was the second episode of Food for Transformation. In the next one, we are going to talk about how we can strengthen rural areas and create sufficient job opportunities. Because all the repurposing leads to nothing if you don't have the farmers to take care of the land, right? I see you soon. <laughs>